Welcome to Good Government Illinois' podcast, Politics 101 with David Orr. I'm David Orr. If you don't know me, basically I went from a college professor who became an alderman of the 49th Ward way back in 1979, uh, became vice mayor under Harold Washington, and very short time was mayor after the tragic death of Mayor Washington in 1987, and then in 1990 became county clerk where I served till 2018, where I retired. I welcome Mike and Scott um, uh, to listen to this. You, you can always look up Spotify, and not only to hear the gentleman today, but we have other podcasts on there, including our municipal series that we aired last January, February, and March. Uh, so let me first introduce our two guests today. Uh, first, um, by age, I think, but I'm not sure. <laughs> um, both are Alderman from the city of Chicago. Scott Wagesback has been 32nd Ward Alderman since 2007. He was a leading voice of progressive dissent under Mayors Daly and Emanuel, and he served as Finance Committee Chair under Mayor Lightfoot, a former city manager of Berwyn, did a lot of work across, the, across outside of the U.S., Peace Corps and other kinds of things, wealth experience and expertise in the nuts and bolts of city budgeting and operations. Mike Rodriguez, has been 22nd Ward Alderman since 2019. Before that, he was CEO of the major Southwest Side Community Organization on LASE, where he grew the organization substantially and expanded programs in violence prevention, community schools, and immigration support. Mike is also now chairman of the Workforce Development Committee when the new city council. Both Scott and Mike are committeemen, you know, that's the political post, both the Democratic Party in the respective wards, and Mike is vice chair of the Cook County Democratic Party. We probably won't go into any of that politics today, but that's a very important position. So let me start with this, okay? Uh, let's start with um, just whether or not you have uh, opening ways. Either one of you say a couple things about uh, maybe the big challenges or what might you think might happen in the council meeting tomorrow. It's now Tuesday, and there's a big city council meeting tomorrow. Um, anything you want to mention? Uh, big notice. Mike, I'll let Thursday. you. Yeah. <laughs> they moved it a day. <laughs> big notice. Yeah. They moved it a day. Yeah. Oh, they did. Oh, we'll see. I no longer get those notices. <laughs> oh. No, so uh, there's a funeral for a firefighter. Uh, oh. Word. So um, they switched it to allow people to go to the funeral. And I think with 9-11 and a lot of the anniversary on that, there was just a, a ask right. to push it back. But um, Mike is right. We're meeting Thursday, same time, okay. same place. And, um, and maybe this will be out by then, maybe not. But anything um, significant you want to mention about what might happen at the council meeting on Thursday? Well, uh, Mike, let me do one. Um, you know, we just had finance committee and we do have uh, a pretty significant settlement that's coming forward. And we had some good discussions around it. It's been um, a lot of changes in, in the way we've been addressing some of the settlements over the last few years. And yeah. this is a police settlement, police settlement that, that um, you know, isn't you know, it's 25, 25 million. Okay. So um, I'm really glad that uh, Scott brought up the finance committee meeting uh, that we just recently had. 
obviously the issues around um, settlements are extremely important. I think Scott um, did a great job in the last several years in reforming the process by which we adjudicate at the city council level these uh, police settlements. Um, significant briefings beforehand to older persons, lots of questions and answers in private that we're able to get um, so that we're able to come to a good decision on them. Um, the other thing that happened at finance that I'm very excited about, I'm glad um, Scott went broad, I'll go local. Uh, in my ward, we passed $4 million uh, in uh, TIF dollars to go to the construction of a new park field um, in the 22nd Ward at the Little Village Lawndale High School. Um, it's a school that's about 98% black and brown and a school that was built for both Little Village and North Lawndale residents and the children from those communities. And um, I'm quite excited to say that we uh, are moving forward on building a new field for uh, a community that's so much in need of green space. So that's part of the exciting thing that uh, Scott and I get to do at uh, City Council is champion projects like this um, in communities like mine in Little Village that, and, that are, are so desperate for uh, investments. Great. Yeah, David, if I could follow up on that. Sure. Um, so what we were seeing a lot of is, uh, you know, trying to shift the TIF funding that, you know, in, in years past would go to more of the businesses, you know, develop things there. Um, Mike had a pretty good development in his ward um, yesterday that's going to go to full council, but some other ones that have come up too. And then we have shifted a lot of the TIF funding expenditures to schools, to the park district, um, which is kind of a sea change from, you know, a decade ago or 20 years ago. Um, you know, and I think they started when you were alderman, if I'm not mistaken, um, back in the 80s, was I think Harold Washington was one of the first ones to start that in Chicago. But, um, you know, we're, what we're seeing is, uh, you know, Mike kind of tipped on it too. When, you, when you're really trying to make sure that kids have a good environment to play in at the parks or at the schools, that's been really important. So what you're seeing is a lot of schools getting rooftops redone, um, their whole HVAC systems redone, safety measures, things like that. And, um, and the, even these play areas. So when you look at uh, a lot of these schools, they're getting new turf where we've had concrete or asphalt there for 20, 30 years. And um, it's a good thing. So that's part of what's happening in finance. And then I really mentioned the settlements. Um, we do have some pretty significant settlements coming up for um, cases where uh, individuals have been exonerated and we're going to have to focus a lot of our budget on, you know, paying those settlements over the next few years. And that's, that's where, uh, basically police officers committed willful or wanton acts against, um, some of these plaintiffs. So that, that's going to be a huge thing for us in the future. But, um, this week we're looking at one settlement, um, in a group of, uh, you know, not the Burge cases, but the Halloran and Boudreaux cases where we're talking about a $25 million just for two people. So th those are issues that um, we're going to be having to address over years to come. Okay, before I move on to the migrant um, situation, which is another challenge, of course, for the city, it's very hard for, uh, okay, you're, you're both experienced aldermen, um, but 
you're facing the fact that so many of these settlements, um, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars over a period of year, are things that happened a long time ago where police did things they shouldn't have done and we're paying a very significant price for it. So uh, I want people to understand that when these things are happening, this is not just yesterday that somebody did something. This is way in the past and I'd like to think we're getting a little better, but we have a pretty sordid history there and um, it's costing hundreds of millions of dollars to the, the current taxpayers. But let's jump on a, a kind of fascinating and complicated, somewhat political situation. And that's happened with so many migrants. I think the numbers are somewhere around 13,500 asylum seekers. There's a lot of different people that come looking for immigration. A lot of the stuff we're talking about right now, right now are basically asylum seekers, right? People who are fleeing some destitute situation or some violent situation in uh, many other countries. Uh, Mike, you've had a significant background on this uh, with your previous work before. Let's just start with you. Um, what are you seeing in the 22nd War when it comes to how we're handling migrants, and and how do you think the uh, the tent um, you know the tent camps will work, or any suggestions about this whole complicated problem, which which we need more federal money on for as well? You know, I'm looking at a picture. Um, that I took the other day of a father holding what's an infant child walking with his daughter and in the background are tents. These are small tents that you may find someone using when they go, um, you know, out for uh, a regular night in the woods. Um, but they are in the front of police stations. Um, you've got three-year-olds sleeping on floors. Um, you know, and I, and I, no, I don't know if you could see this, but here's a picture of a couple families in front of the 10th District Police Station and the tents mm -hmm. behind them. Um, that's what we're dealing with in my ward. Um, where there are 70 migrants who are at the 10th District Police Station. Um, we have another 200 that are at Petrowski Park down the street from my house on 31st Street. Um, 200 migrants who have been staying at Petrowski Park for some months now, uh, many of which who are now their children are going to our schools. And I think it's an important topic, you know, Ever since I was a young man, young boy, growing up in Little Village, um, we've been building new schools in Little Village because our population increases have been um, significant. Um, over the last 10 years or so, though, net migration from Mexico is actually negative. More people going to Mexico than coming from Mexico, right? So the population in Little Village actually has decreased over the last uh, several years. Now, much of that's due to the fact that the Cook County Jail is in uh, my neighborhood. So, you know, it's, you could say what you want about the data. With that said, my schools are becoming less populated. And the fact is, in May, we enrolled 69 kids in four separate schools. That's all budget decreases of multi-million dollars collectively because of the loss of student enrollment. So I think there's also an opportunity here that we need to look at with migrants coming to our city, 
we need to integrate them into our city. The fact is that we are a welcoming city. We are a city built by immigrants and we cannot turn a blind eye to our brothers and sisters um, that are coming from now from, from Venezuela, Colombia and other places um, in South, from South America now. It's a diff different phenomena. Um, over the last several years, my community has experienced an influx of Guatemalan immigrants as well in our community. Again, people searching for a better quality of life. And I remember the first day in office, Mayor Johnson came to Pachowski Park in my ward and walked with me through Pachowski Park. And he got to speak to one of the residents there who only asked him for one thing. And that was an opportunity to work legally. Like these folks are coming here to work. The vast majority of folks who are coming here are good, decent folks who are looking for a better quality of life. So I think the tapestry of our great city, its foundation is immigrants and migrants coming to our great city. This is the next wave, but the situation is untenable. The fact is, is that we have unscrupulous Republican governors and others who are trying to leverage the fact that we're a welcoming city to make a political point. And it is disgusting. And they're sending people here without coordination um, and without much as far as resources, zero as far as resources. So we as a city are left with a very difficult choice. Do we want our police stations full? Do we want three-year-olds sleeping on the floor of police stations? The answer is obviously no. That's a, that's a problem for our police officers, communities alike, and for the migrants that are sleeping on floors. So the, 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 the mayor has proposed um, um, congregate setting of, of 500 to 1,000 uh, migrants that would be in winter, winterized tents um, that would have access to the things that I think are very basic. Legal representation potentially, but more importantly, food, access to washrooms at a respectable ratio. Right now we have uh, 100 migrants per washroom at the 10th district police station. The tents I'm hearing are will be about a fifth of that, which is which is very very important to bring down that ratio. Uh, but then also they'll be heated, winterized um, for those elements. So look, it's not ideal that plan, but it's one that um, I will be supporting and making sure that it goes well. We figure out a more broad plan to be able to integrate these migrants into our city. Um, we need to do it quicker. We need to do a better job of getting folks out of our, our, our care, if you will, and get them into housing. Um, but I'm hopeful that we can get there. But I'll be honest with folks that, you know, look at climate change, the instability of governments throughout the world. Uh, this is not going to be a one-time phenomenon to our city. We've got to have a long-term plan. And we need a lot more as far as federal help is concerned on this. Uh, I can keep on going on and on, forgive me, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Well, it's very important because I mean, anybody that knows our U.S. history knows we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people coming in waves of immigration through much of our history, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so, okay, Scott, what about your ward? Um, um, well, we've been, you know, we've been dealing with some of the same issues for quite a while. The uh, two or three police stations, you know, they've been doing a good job through the officers there. When this originally started, it was really a lot of the officers taking care of um, people that were showing up there. And what I've seen from our officers has been a pretty good 
response to it. You know, they they continue to help out where they can, but they also know that they need the space to do their jobs. Um, so I think having a, a coordinated response to it is is very important. You know, and it's like you said, you know, we've had hundreds of thousands come at different times in this country and we'll continue to do that. You know, I've been working with a lot of Afghan and Iraqi ref, Iraqi refugees for many years, um, you know, supporting them through different methods. But the um, the thing that Mike brought up about, uh, you know, Florida, Texas, it's really important to make sure that the federal government does their job as well um, to try to get us the funding that we need to support these migrants that are coming here and, and not just in winter camps, but, you know, for permanent and housing and for, for jobs, um, documentation that they need. This is stuff that Florida and Texas, where they would have been coming through in the first or are coming through in the first place that they, I believe would be getting funding for. And, uh, you know, maybe it's high time that the Biden administration just said, we're going to reappropriate some of those funds that you would normally get there and just send it to Chicago and these other cities that are helping the migrants as opposed to pushing them out the, you know, back door and what is most unethical and probably illegal way possible. Um, but, you know, we all know it's a, we've got an election year coming up. So, um, it's going to be a tough choice, but I think uh, Biden does a lot better. President Biden does a lot better if he really gets behind the efforts that we're undertaking to provide these people with a permanent home. And the other thing is to provide them with the opportunity to work. As I said, I walk with Mayor Johnson at Pachowski Park. The one person he talks to is talking about getting a job. The fact is that a stroke of the pen, President Biden can extend temporary protected status to uh, many of these migrants. And look, I, I think any situation, any answer to this um, to this challenge is problematic. But what I can't fathom is people continuing to live in the shadows. The fact is, is that we've needed comprehensive immigration reform for the past several decades. Hasn't happened. Um, we have piecemeal legislation at the federal level. So we need another piecemeal piece of legislation here and uh, uh, allow folks to be able to work. And the president can do it, but I think Scott's right as far as this being an election year. And it seems like common sense goes out the door um, during these types of years. Well, there's cl clearly going to be uh, amazing political football going on, but hopefully uh, at least people in Chicago appreciate that you, you have to do something to help people and they will have benefits uh, down the road for the city. Let me jump to the budget, although I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the budget because um, uh, you're kind of just starting and we'll probably have some other, other podcasts on them. But let me start with uh, you, Scott, since you had so much experience um, as former head of the finance committee. Um, just tell us briefly, do you know um, or even if you know what the, the timeline might be, you know, some mayors wanna push the budget sooner some want to go longer. And so one is, um, if we know the timeline, and secondly, what do we see the biggest challenges um, uh, for the mayor, in this case, uh, Mayor Johnson, to, to get a budget passed that he's happy with? Well, we're, we just started having discussions, and I, I think it's a good thing to always start these as early as you can. Uh, Alderman Irvin or Chairman Irvin's running 
the budget committee. And um, I think Mike, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've met a couple times in small pockets of, you know, like in in my case, sort of just north part of the city. Um, I've met with two different pockets of aldermen that are kind of close by me to say what are the issues that you're seeing, you know, in your area of the city and what are pe people concerned about. So we've had a couple of those meetings just to kind of get a good sense of which direction should we, you know, be looking at or going. Um, obviously, the migrant issue is on the table. Um, we talked about things like um, how is the grid system going for the forestry department? Um, yes, you know, just in finance, we had a settlement on a dead tree that fell on somebody. It was actually right near my house um you know that we paid out a pretty significant amount of money for so we we were having pretty lengthy discussions about risk management in the different departments and how much that costs us if we don't follow through on some of the changes that we need to see in budgets um you know as you know the departments come before us in november um sometimes they're they're earlier we have to pass a budget by the end of the year so we're just starting to kick off and see you know where um, some of those big topics or topics are going to be and um, it's not just the corporate budget but people are talking about um, you know how does that intersect with cps with the park district with cha um, and the other agencies that really you know we need to hear from and should be at the table um, when we're having these broader discussions so you know, last year we were talking about transportation issues with the CTA and coming out of COVID, the CTA has done just a horrible job of responding, um, you know, at the tail end of COVID, uh, at the tail end of the pandemic. And, you know, we want to see a much more robust response there. We, we do provide some limited funding for the CTA. They get a lot of it from the federal government's also, you know, generally subsidized. But we also need to see the leadership in each one of those agencies really responding to the aldermen because we're pretty much, as everybody says, the first line of contact with anybody in the city or, you know, in some cases um, in the state when they're coming to the city. So, um, yeah, the discussions are just starting out. Um, we're going to look at the revenue coming in to see how well that looks. And uh, hopefully it's robust coming out of the pandemic as we recover from that. Okay, let me ask uh, you, Mike, um, what do you think the chances are? You, you know, it's going to be tough. We've got potentially $250 million, a shortfall because of the, the migrant situation we're dealing with. We have the enormous pension, um, pension debt and so forth. Uh, how, you're pretty confident. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say um, Mayor Johnson will get, will get his budget. He's going to get the votes unlike what Harold had to face uh, way back in the 80s when he could never be sure whether or not he could get uh, get the ultimate response. In fact, uh, in 1984, uh, the famous Eddie Verdoliak took it all the way down to December 31st, New Year's Eve. Ultimate was still meeting, trying to fight over whether or not they could pass a budget. Uh, so tell what do you think are the, the, the key things coming up and how confident are you we can get a good budget? So it looks like the budget address will be in the second week of October and we'll have a uh, significant debate um, and we'll engage the departments, as Scott said, and in the last two weeks of October, maybe bleeding into November. And I, I suspect maybe in the second week of November or so um, getting a budget um, voted on. And I'm very hopeful that it will be one that we approve 
uh, given that we have other business to attend to. Um, with that said, uh, just for context, you have a very large progressive caucus that if you count current and former members, it's ticking close to uh, a majority of the caucus of the of the council, forgive me. Um, I think things like uh, the reestablishment of the Department of Environment are on the table. Uh, advocates have expressed to me, particularly as the, uh, the chair of the Workforce Development Committee, advocates have come to me and we are working diligently on building out the Office of Labor Standards. The fact is, is that our Office of Labor Standards is, uh, is comparatively to other cities very small. Uh, and in the past four years, done some great things. We raised the minimum wage. We passed the Fair Work Week legislation, of which uh, I was uh, chief co-sponsor. In this uh, uh, fall, we're working on things like uh, ending, ending the subminimum wage, tip wage for workers. We're working on um, sponsoring rideshare legislation to approve working conditions for rideshare drivers and paid leave uh, versus paid sick leave, getting more days of lead, ma leave mandated for uh, working class folks. The fact is, is that those adjudicating these things, handling things at the city um, are very small numbers. So we need to build out our Office of Labor Standards. Those are the couple of things as far as uh, city uh, staffing we're looking at. Um, there obviously are, are a ton of different issues um, related and unrelated to the budget. Bring Chicago home is a massive item, not necessarily going to the budget. Um, but will be very important as far as uh, the city of Chicago is concerned. Um, that'll be coming up soon, I'm sure, in city council as well. So back to the budget, I think um, we need to first figure out what the deficit is going to look like. Um, the, the previous mayor ha had a projection that was under $100 million. I've heard some estimates as much as $400 million. Uh, my money is it's somewhere in there. Um, and, uh, with that said, you know, we're going to have to be very creative in how we manage this at the same time as we're experiencing, particularly in Brown communities, um, significant increases in, 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 in property taxes, uh, and what people have to pay for their property tax bills. And in subsequent years, potentially other communities will be feeling that same pain. Um, there's only so many times you can go down that well, of which is potentially a regressive well as well. Uh, forgive the use of well multiple times. Um, with that said, um, you know, it's going to be a real active uh, six weeks here um, leading up to what potentially would be budget passage. Uh, since you mentioned that, Mike, and I was going to ask anyway, um, let's talk about the tip wage issue just briefly because you mentioned it. That's coming up. Um um, you know, explain briefly what it's about for people. And uh, the, um, there's been some compromises suggested. The Illinois Restaurant Association is fighting back. Um, but just tell us briefly what it's all about. And it's a big labor town. A lot of people are very concerned about it. So go ahead. Well, folks don't understand here in the States is that tipping is not a common practice anywhere else in the world, pretty much. Tipping actually is a vestige of uh, post-enslavement, uh, the Reconstruction era, where Black women entered the workforce, but did so uh, with the agreement that they would get a sub-minimum wage and that tips would be put on top of that. The fact is, is that restaurant workers who are primarily women, who are primarily Black and Brown, um, are subjected to harassment at a higher rate than others. Um, and they're uh, subject to more work exploitation 
uh, than others. We, we, we've got to reform the system and, and we've got to end it. And we got to do that as a country. But here locally, we need to start and we need to be leaders on this. Um, we've seen tip wages uh, in parts of California, in Washington, D.C., and other places go away. And to no net detriment towards uh, the business community or restaurants in those areas. In fact, we've seen studies that uh, restaurants do better. Um, so I am very hopeful uh, that this effort, um, led by rookie alderwoman uh, Jesse Fuentes, who's uh, an awesome uh, new member of our council, um, you know, I'm very hopeful that this gets a hearing and it gets passed. We do have the Illinois Restaurant Association that is at the table. Um, there have been negotiations. I've been in the room to see some of those negotiations. I am very hopeful um, that with the respectable ramp up uh, that we can get to to a deal here and get the votes necessary to get this passed. Uh, Scott, Scott, the Restaurant Association, if I understand them right, uh, many of us know Sam Toy over the years, has suggested that not going down this road, but the way to deal with it is to have the city come down hard, which they should be doing anyway, but come down hard on those employers that aren't paying what they're supposed to. What they're supposed to do is the, the, the minimum wage, if it doesn't get to the $15 plus, then they're supposed to make sure that the person gets that through the tips. And if not, they make up the difference. Uh, so they're suggesting uh, we need to crack down on all those restaurants, big or small, that aren't, aren't doing that. Um, any two yeah. cents on that or? Yeah, I think that's, a, I mean, it's a good idea and that could be in conjunction with everything else that's going on. Um, and I haven't been in those negotiations, uh, but Mike mentioned OLS, Office of Labor Standards, and that um, many years ago when we first talked about it, that was one of the issues that um, we needed to see more enforcement by the department. Um, at the time, it, it was BACP that would have, uh, that's the Bureau um, uh, business affairs and consumer protection. They they used to do that if you could really push them to go into a restaurant and say, you guys really need to take a look at what's happening behind the scenes here. But that was pretty uncommon to get them to be able to enforce um, any worker issues at a restaurant, you know, kind of behind, behind the scenes um, where people didn't notice it. And then OLS was created to really kind of start tackling those issues. So um, I, I mean, I agree with Sam Toy on that. I think, you know, more fines and, and really enforcing some of these issues that you see in a lot of restaurants. And it's at, uh, it's at all levels of restaurants, too. Even some of these high-end restaurants, you've, you've seen issues come out where, um, you know, there's been abuse in the back room, in the, in the kitchen. There's been um, abuse of wages. And I think that's where OLS getting beefed up, um, you know, obviously fines would help out, but just having a consistent department that's really going after those bad actors is going to be helpful. So I think we would all be saying, you know, increase the staff that can get out there and, and tackle this issue. Um, and not just this issue, but a lot of other ones that restaurant workers and workers in the city kind of face on a daily basis. You know, at the core of this is the fact that women are exploited in this industry. Women, um, the, fa the fact is, is that if you're 
a female bartender or waitress, you may feel the need in order to provide for your family to take uh, exploitation from potential customers, sexual innuendo, things of the nature in order to earn your tip. And that's not right. And we need to, we need to get, we need to get rid of the tip um, wage, a subminimum wage um, so that we can get out of that behavior. Um, the fact is, is that we're here to govern. Um, we're here to make life better. Um, and I'm here particularly for working class people. My ward in Little Village in North Lawndale and even um, parts of my white ethnic um, areas are working class residents. They are the people that are um, staffing these restaurants from local stores to downtown uh, hotels. And they deserve to have a good quality of life and not sacrifice what they earn um, and sacrifice their self-respect at the same time. Well, it's a very good point because there, there is more of that uh, exploitation uh, than is usually discussed. That is, is part of the issue of, um, you know, just bad behavior on the part of many customers knowing that uh, what, what is a waitress going to say. Um, and I like what you mentioned at the very beginning. And I, I noticed that when I travel too, I like to be a, you know, a good tipper because I'm concerned about the people. But on the other hand, it's like, why? And, and particularly in some of the, let's say, nicer restaurants or more expensive, you know, you, you got to put out a fortune when you're wondering, these guys are, they're making a fortune, the owners, and why aren't they paying the people enough so uh, so we shouldn't have to be paying these these tips. So it's just, it's one of those things that somehow grows in the U.S. and people don't realize that it's not what everybody does. And it's just a way for the, the haves to get more. And look, it's okay. It's, we're not saying we're ending tipping. That's what I know. I know. Okay. I'm saying we're ending that. But the fact, all we're saying is that restaurant workers will earn a minimum wage as well, right? Right. You're in these high-end restaurants. There's some people who do very well for themselves, make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Just off yeah. the That's great. That'll still happen. We still think that's fine. Um, but for working class folks, everyday folks, we, we think they need to get into a better, uh, a better um, working situation. Okay, let me jump quickly to another issue that I think will be big in this administration, and that's affordable housing. In other words, I think there's a lot of people that are really committed to trying to deal with a very serious problem in the city. Um, let me just ask you, because um, we're not going to go into a much larger issue like that with our limited time. Let me ask each of you. Each of you does have CHA in your communities, okay? Um, many communities do, not all, but um, increasingly so. So in, just in your case, I think in Scott's case, it's the Lathrop Homes. Uh, in your case, it might be more than that, Mike, but the Leclerc Courts. Uh, just briefly, each of you tell me how that's going in, in your wards. You want to go first, Scott? Go back yeah, and forth. I could, I'll jump in. Well, I just, um, I actually met with Mercy Housing uh, just before this, and we've been trying to get um, some affordable, uh, fully, you know, subsidized units in with them for a couple of years. And we've run into a brick wall, not with, not so much with the city, I, I think a little bit there with housing, but um, more with Ida, the Illinois Housing Development uh, folks. And you know, trying to get the, the package fully complete there. Um, so it, it's not always the city that's at fault, but trying to get the state as well to kind of close off on some of these packages to, you know, finalize some projects. Um, 
and we've had great support for those. But yeah, I have uh, Lathrop Homes, and Lathrop Homes has been an extremely frustrating project to watch for many years. Um, I actually just with redistricting, I picked up the the whole um, project there, and that was the original affordable housing project in the city of Chicago, if you recall. Uh, well, you wouldn't, you weren't uh, born yet, but uh, <laughs> um, so we've been, yeah, we've been, uh, you're still young, man. So we've been um, working closely. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we've been working as closely as we can with the um, CHA, you know, and I told them early on, look, I get the fact that, you know, this went away under Rahm Emanuel. We used to have over 900 affordable units there at the peak of Lathrop Homes. Um, and that has now been reduced to what is effectively um, a little over 300. And at the same time, you know, the property is sitting, the half of the property is sitting vacant. And you drive by it every day, people drive by and they're like, what is it gonna take for the CHA to kind of get this thing up and running? What is the developer doing to, you know, kind of get off their butts as well to move it forward? And so it, it's, um, I think what we're looking at is how do we, you know, drive more funding to that project to get the, the final deal that we need to finish off the project and get families back in there. Um, people are, you know, clamoring to um, go back into that, that space. Um, but, you know, the CHA for decades, I think, has has been a black hole in some ways. And you get good directors in there that I think are committed to doing the right thing, but there's a level of bureaucracy below them that um, really kind of drags things down, um, slows down projects. So it takes years, if not, you know, more to, to get these projects and um, completed and get people in there. So Lathrop Homes, for me, even though it's not been in my ward, it's just been a very difficult one to watch. Um, you know, we picked it up from the first ward. I think they've had good intentions over the years to get things done, but it's just never materialized. So um, it, it's similar to other projects around the city, but I think in, a, in an area like ours, when we're committed to having that, uh, those affordable units, um, it needs to get done. But this is where I think we're gonna have to light a fire under the CHA and, and really get them moving. But it's not them alone again. It's the developer as well, you know, pushing money to other projects and kind of playing a little bit of the blame game when um, they could easily, you know, move forward and in terms of a good plan. Okay, Mike, twenty second ward. <laughs> uh, we a uh, bit of a different story. Um, so, you know, we know that public housing for decades have been has been disinvested in has been put on the other side of the railroad tracks or the or the expressway and forgotten about bled to death by the Reagan administration particularly you know it's, it's no coincidences that elevators wouldn't get fixed um windows wouldn't get broken windows wouldn't get fixed you know there was no attention given um and no amenities put around public housing. Um, so I think for me, we need to have a new vision on what um, affordable housing looks like. I've got to say, we are extremely excited about what's happening on 43rd and Cicero at the former Leclerc courts. 
As a matter of fact, just today, I was just this morning, and I'm kind of emotional about this. I was at the grand opening of the Academy for Global Citizenship, a $60 million school that was built mm -hmm. in my ward and that opened today to 600 uh, young people, pre-K through eighth grade. I, it, it's an absolutely beautiful facility um, uh, right in the heart of the Leclerhurst community. Um, and I'm very proud of that school, but that's phase one of what's an amazing development. Um, we have a, received approvals um, already for what will be two large units of affordable housing, 200 units of affordable housing right across the street um, will be a federally qualified health center and a 60,000 square foot grocery store in the health and food deserts. Talk about putting affordable housing around the amenities that are really needed to make those communities work, right? A new school that's highly invested in, a new grocery store in a food desert, healthcare center in a health desert. The first floor of one of the buildings will have an early childhood center uh, that just received $10 million in a state grant in an early childhood um, pot of capital dollars. Um, I'm very excited about what's happening on the Southwest side of Chicago in the gateway to Midway. I have a little picture here as well. I'm good with pictures today. So good. I don't know right. if you can see, but those are the two affordable housing units at the top two pictures there. And that third picture there is the federally qualified health center. All of this will be along Cicero Avenue between the, Cicero, huh? yeah. the I-55 expressway as you're approaching Midway Airport, the gateway to Midway. So we're talking about a game changer here. Uh, the largest development on the southwest side of Chicago since Midway Airport. Um, and we're really excited about the multiplier effects here that this project will have, but it's done with community engagement. The fact is, when I first started, my first day in office in 2019, the developer on this project was chosen. And I knew that a couple of years down the road, we would potentially have nimbyism rear its ugly head. The not in my backyards people showing up to city council and saying they were against this project. But we've been able to add the amenities that the whole community can engage on. The school has 600 kids there. Not one affordable housing unit has been built yet. It will be. We'll be in the ground early next year. Um, but the whole community is benefiting from that. The grocer, the Federal Equality Health Center is there for the whole community. So we need to integrate the, the affordable housing into the neighborhood as well. It can't be separate and apart. It must be one for all of this to work. And I think about when I go to New York and you talk about public housing, you can't differentiate between the public, the private sector housing, right? In some respects, you can out there, but largely you can't. And I think we need to get to that to some extent here in our great city as well. And I'm excited and I hope that 43rd and Cicero and the reinvention of Leclerc Courts there will be a model for this type of development, not just in our city, but throughout the country. And I'm excited to be the alderman of the 22nd Ward right now. It sound, does sound exciting. And for those who travel, you sometimes you wonder why the, a CHA has so many problems and there's, there's, you know, fiscal issues that are very important. When you travel around the world and you see fairly attractive buildings, big ones, they're not hidden out someplace or, 
right next to a cemetery, but they're big, nice buildings with hundreds, if not thousands of people living there. And when you go, let's through, through Europe and other places, uh, they don't have, well, everybody's got the NIMBY thing, and but so much of ours is race. It's race-related or the fear, okay? When if, like you say, that when, when you when you treat public housing and you make it work rather than, uh, as Scott's seen in certain cases and you said before, if they don't take care of it, and then it's so easy to blame the current the current residents why, you know, the property seems to be run down. But uh, so that's exciting. Uh, we don't have much time. I'm trying to ask you one more quick question. And it may be too too complicated to be quick. Uh, but let's just touch briefly on um, on the police or public safety. I'm only going to touch briefly because I'll be doing another podcast more elaborate on on some of these issues. But um, let's just see about what happened in a recent arbitrator's ruling. Okay. Um, and again, maybe if that's too complicated, we'll just have to only touch a little bit. But a recent ruling that would give uh, options, in a sense, to police officers about how they might pursue this. And it sounds like it would end up in a, a lot of key decisions about bad behavior by police being in secret. Um, already on what we said earlier in the show that we're dealing with these massive settlements sometimes of, because uh, police behavior has proven to be illegal or incorrect, whatever. So uh, what's that all about? What's the um, arbitrator's issue here? Sure. Um, I could take it, Scott, if you want. Um, so an independent arbitrator has basically sided with the Fraternal Order, order of Police, um, stating that um, significant police misconduct cases, and I won't go too in-depth on, on, on which, um, would be eligible if an officer chooses to go to an independent arbiter versus the police board, a police board that's named and confirmed by city council, um, named by the mayor and confirmed by city council. Um, the fact is, is that each of these decisions are going to be of public interest. And largely, an arbitrator's decision in these types of cases will be private. The police board decisions are public hmm. and available for our scrutiny. In addition, studies show that arbitrators versus the police board tend to be more lenient in these types of cases. Um, I have significant concerns about this process, and I certainly will be pushing back um, and working to make sure that the police board is still a vital part of the continuity of what we are trying to do is reforming um, public safety and its bodies so that they become better public institutions to improve the confidence that community members have in the institution of policing. The fact is in my community, um, we have too many murders and shootings. Many times when a case is solved and many cases do not get solved, but when they are solved, it's through some sort of tip from the community, some sort of community engagement, some neighbor, some community leader who engages the police and offers up the information that leads to the potential um, resolution to a crime. The fact is we need to be improving community police relationships. 
and by destabilizing institutions, by not holding bad police accountable, you're penalizing good police, and you are increasing the dissatisfaction and the potential for engagement by the public with appropriate police engagement. I'm very concerned about this decision and we'll be looking uh, um, at this very closely. Okay, Scott, we'll give you the last word. And on uh, mute. Unmuted, yeah. Um, well, I think the, uh, you know, there's always other things that we have to look at here. The Illinois Labor Relations Act, um, the Uniform Arbitration Act. This is what these guys really look closely at and, and base a lot of their decisions on. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the city objected to this as well um, in, in a brief. So, you know, hopefully this is something that um, arbitrators, you know, they're supposed to follow the law uh, that they've been given. And I think what we have to do is uh, wait and see what between the law department, um, I think Gian Foreman from the um, police board, he's objected to it as well. So there's, it's all on record what I think the city's position is and, and the direction they want to go. Um, so hopefully that's, it's resolved and, you know, there's not a slippery slope here for taking these things outside the transparency that uh, police board was starting to really show more and more over the last several years. Okay, well, I I, um, I don't like to go on too long in these podcasts. I know both of you are busy. The budget committee may still be going on. Um, so I want to thank uh, Mike Rodriguez and Scott Wagesbeck, two very talented aldermen. Uh, I wish you had all 50 like you. Um, thank, thank you very much. There's so many issues. We'll be talking to you all again as, um, as you face the budget and many other very exciting things. So, Thank you, um, David. On, on behalf of Good Government Illinois, we thank you very much. Un placer right. estar con usted, David. <laughs> Adios, señor. <laughs> thank you, David. Thank you.